Our reading today is from Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. God's word says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Please be seated. And we'll pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that today at the beginning of the new year, you would help us to hear it uh, with ready hearts. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what you have for us here. And that you would help us to uh, apply it, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would apply it to us to help us uh, trust you more and obey you more wholeheartedly. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now that Christmas is over, we're back to judgment. Um, So a cheery way to start out the new year here. Uh, There is this theme of rejection in this passage, and that's kind of the theme we're actually going to follow this morning. Of course, there is a theme of judgment here as, as it talks about Uh, with people being crushed by the cornerstone and broken in pieces on the cornerstone. But we're going to follow a theme of rejection, as the parable does. And we're going to talk about how that brings us uh, to Christ, I hope. Um, As a brief note of explanation on the parable, and then we'll begin talking about it, I think it's important to point out that uh, parables are not exactly allegories. This one actually is probably as close as you can come to a parable being an allegory. But I don't want us to be caught up in details, uh, looking for how each thing corresponds to one other exact thing. That's, That's not how parables work. The thing with parables is that the main thing is the main thing, right? And so this, like I said, this is about as close as, as a parable comes to allegory within the Gospels, and it's a pretty simple one, actually. Uh, so we'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. Uh, it's easy to lose sight of the theme of rejection in this passage because of the theme of judgment. I mean, I think that's kind of the, the thing that my eyes first go to is, is judgment here. Uh, but rejection is an important theme. It helps us understand what's actually going on with Jesus and with the scribes and Pharisees who are ultimately rejected themselves. 
Israel rejects the prophets, the leaders reject Jesus, and finally Jesus rejects these religious leaders. So it's a pretty simple parallel from uh, the vineyard and these uh, husbandmen or vine dressers, the people who are supposed to be taking care of uh, this, this vineyard. They're sort of like lease farmers in this culture. And then, of course, uh, the people who are sent to gather from them as the owner of the land is far away, we've got the prophets of Old Testament Israel. And it's a, it's a pretty easy sort of lineup there to find uh, how, how these two things go together and what Jesus is doing. He's sort of summarizing the history of Israel. Okay, so uh, as we get into this passage, the first thing I want to look at here is an example for us. Jesus is an example for us for dealing with the rejection uh, or dealing with rejection for our faith. It's, uh, it's kind of the long history of God's people, actually, to deal with being rejected by the world, to deal with being rejected uh, by close family relations. Maybe you felt some of that tension over the holidays. It's the history of Israel to be uh, rejected by the nations around them, to be persecuted by the nations around them. Of course, it's Jesus' own history. And there are several ways of dealing with rejection for our faith that I've found, uh, or at least that I'm going to outline here. And there are more, I'm sure. But I'm going to do this irresponsibly and in broad strokes, so just deal with it. Uh, You can abandon the thing you're rejected for by saying you don't believe it anymore or by kind of changing it, right? Changing its form and making it a more acceptable version for yourself or other people. You can step away from rejection in indifference to other people and and isolate yourself from rejection and, and wall yourself off so that you're too far away from conflict to feel it. Or you can try to gain the power necessary to make others accept you. And if I had to use a broad stroke taxonomy of Christians, I would say that like liberals, if anybody ever listens to this in the future, I am using air quotes just uh, for sake of saying that, that liberals within Christianity tend to abandon belief or make it more palatable. Pietists tend to cloister and uh, maybe deflect some or isolate themselves so they don't feel it. That has nothing to do with me. And conservatives tend to seek power. Okay, that's broad strokes. And I am referring to categories within our faith, not in politics, but uh, there's some overlap, and that's okay. But what does Jesus do here with rejection? He doesn't do any of the things that I just mentioned. Uh, he, he says, you've rejected me. You will reject me. I always knew that you would. That's what I came for, actually. And then he keeps on marching. He doesn't whine. He doesn't change who he has been saying he is. He doesn't say, well, that has basically nothing to do with me, so I can just ignore it. And he doesn't rush to give three very logical reasons for why they can't reject him. 
and stay sane persons at the same time. He just takes it, actually. See, Jesus doesn't run away either. He knows what is coming. He tells them what they are going to do. He actually goes to a scripture that is hundreds of years old and tells them what they're going to do. So I think he probably had known for a while what was going to happen. He was expecting to be rejected by the religious leaders of his day. Our Lord founded a faith of uh, rejection and lowliness and self-denial. We should expect to be rejected by other people. As his followers, we should expect that. We should also not inflate every rejection that we face uh, as individuals or as a group. But we should expect to be rejected. There is a pattern of God's people being rejected, as we've said before, for their beliefs. And let's make sure that's the thing that we're rejected for, of course. But there is a pattern of this with God's people. The prophets were rejected long ago by Israel. Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. And Jesus told us that the servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And finally, we often forget that Jesus told us it is actually a blessed thing to be persecuted or rejected, if you will. He said, great is your reward in heaven, for so they treated the prophets who were before you. So we have here an example of one who endured rejection. Our faith is built on a person who was rejected for what he stood for. His teaching was disliked. His identity was debated, and he was hated. But he continued marching toward Jerusalem, not to conquer it, and gain power to make people accept him, but to be killed. He didn't run away from the conflict or the rejection, and he didn't change his message. He kept on with his God-given mission. We've not been given a religion of uh, power or greatness, but of lowliness and self-denial and even rejection. We should expect that we would be despised by the world, Maybe we should even be uh, happy about it, that we would be so closely associated with Christ that we would participate in his own sufferings and rejection for us. Now, here in our country, the way many of us have grown up, we've grown up without a lot of this. Uh, very few of us have grown up with serious conflict over our faith, or serious rejection over our faith. Some have. I don't mean to downplay that at all, but, uh, but not many of us. Not in the same way that Jesus did, or his immediate disciples, or many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Our people have faced a lot worse than what we have faced here, in large part. And we should be happy that we've grown up in America, where this rejection has been pretty mild, but we should also expect that that will change. I don't necessarily mean that we need to be doomsdayers and say that this is happening already and uh, that we're already under terrible persecution or something. Uh, maybe we are seeing the beginnings of how our, our country and our society's attitude toward face of all sorts and uh, the Christian message in particular, the gospel, is, is changing. Maybe. 
but I don't think, I, I'm not trying to rush us there and, and say we should be on five alarms, right? Simply that we should expect that as followers of Jesus who preach a message of folly, of a, of a dying man, that that would be rejected. And then we have this whole system of morals based on his lowliness and his person and his character and his holiness that is pretty antithetical to everything else around us. We should expect that we would be rejected. And we should embrace it. It's, it's fine and good to take appropriate steps to protect ourselves and others, but we have to remember what our faith is about. So what does it mean for you that our faith is founded on the person of Jesus who was despised and rejected by men? So we have this example of Jesus, but we also have a warning from Jesus in this passage. Here comes the judgment part. I know you've been waiting on that. At the end of the parable, it says that the landowner will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. One odd thing about the parable is actually this, that the landowner does not come to destroy the tenants or these like lease farmers. That's what's going on here, by the way, is... uh, the, the land owner owns this land and then he, he lets out the land to people who will work it for him. Uh, and then he'll receive payment or rent in some way from the fruit that they harvest, from the wine that they make. And so he sends servants to collect is what's happening here. Uh, one of the strangest things about the parable actually is if we were to line it up just purely with reality, it's this that the landowner sends three servants and then his son. He doesn't seek justice and he doesn't come with an army after just one servant, which I think is what we would expect if we stop to give this a little bit of thought. It, it doesn't take much to think, oh, they, they beat his servant. Actually, the word in the Greek, uh, one commentator suggested is more like flayed, like they actually did really terrible things to the first man to come. And so what we should expect is that the landowner would have come right away and destroyed these people, that he would have put them to death or taken them to the authorities or whatever the the proper justice would have been, hopefully, for this group. But this guy sends more servants. And then finally his son. He actually bears with them very patiently. Now, it doesn't surprise many people in a congregation like this, I don't think. But this this teaching was actually really surprising for the people who heard it. Because this is actually a teaching of judgment. When Jesus uh, tells everybody this parable, what is he saying? He's saying that the religious leaders are going to reject the Messiah, the Son of God. That's unexpected. Israel's been hoping and and kind of dreaming all along that the Messiah would come and all would be bliss because everyone would jump on board with him 
and things would go according to plan. But then also, not only are the religious leaders going to reject the Messiah, he goes on to say that he's the cornerstone, and we'll come back to what that means exactly later, or he's, he's the most important, he's an authority now, and whoever falls on him will be broken in pieces, and whoever he falls on will be crushed. And so he goes from saying that the religious leaders are going to reject the Messiah to saying that the Messiah is also going to reject the religious leaders. This is a big plot twist for the Israelites listening to this. It's, uh, I think it's probably hard for us to imagine what it would look like for Christ to come now and completely reject our pastors or in our different traditions, our, our, our bishops or our elders or whatever we're looking at here. It's hard for us to imagine that Christ would come and completely reject the religious leaders of his people. It's not what we're expecting. It's the last people. It's the last group of people that we would expect Christ is going to be warning about their impending doom in this passage. Okay, but the scribes and the priests, they want nothing to do with Jesus. So he tells them they will be broken by him. We don't always think of Jesus as bringing judgment uh, we think of God the Father, perhaps, as being angry at sin and bringing judgment. But we don't, we don't always think of Jesus like that. So let's allow this passage to correct our thoughts about him. Jesus is God. He is holy and just, and he is coming to judge the living and the dead, as we often confess together in the creeds. Revelation the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible tells us that Jesus will be riding a white horse and getting bloody in the last battle. And the Gospels tell us in many places that Jesus will bring serious judgment one day. It seems that we struggle with the justice of God. I'm using justice for a reason here. This is not wild vigilantism or just some bully. It seems that we struggle with the justice of God, particularly in the Western world. From my own experience uh, in, in many conversations, we seem to think of God punishing people for doing things that he just arbitrarily decided are wrong things as if he's just the biggest boy on the playground and his rules go. But that's not the case here with Jesus. The Jewish leaders haven't just broken a few rules. They've broken plenty and they've misunderstood God's law. But there's something more going on here. They're rejecting the person of Jesus, God himself. He who came to die for sinners. He who came to be with sinners and make it so we can be with him forever. He who came to suffer. He who made the world. He who is above all angels and deserves all praise and honor and glory. 
and they've rejected him, the one. And they will be crushed for that. If judgment is offensive to you, then I'd ask you to spend more time, or spend some time, maybe, maybe for the first time, seriously considering the person of Jesus, who he is and what he's like. And if you do, I think you'll begin to understand how rejecting him merits this judgment and this punishment. It begins to make sense, not just because he's the biggest boy on the playground, but because he's wonderful and beautiful. When we begin to see what he really deserves from people, this judgment begins to to fit into place and we understand what's really going on here. It's important to note here, too, that it is religious people who have rejected Jesus. If you've ever questioned your faith or begun to doubt our holy religion because of the way you've seen religious people acting, you should know that the Bible records that very thing. Right? Like this, this isn't something hidden in the Bible. And this isn't the only place. And it's not just Jews. Paul faces problems with people seeming to reject Jesus or not walking in his ways, even in the churches that he writes to. The Bible doesn't try to hide this sort of behavior. There is certainly a distinction between those who know Jesus and those who don't. But never forget that Jesus' primary persecutors were not the Romans, who had nothing to do with Judaism, but they were Jews who had been looking for the Messiah all along. You should expect that religious people will act shamefully. We have uh, what the Westminster Confession calls remaining corruption in us. And that's for the ones who do truly believe. And then, of course, we know from Jesus' own teaching that the church is a mixed bag. We do not all truly believe. So we should expect this. And it's sad. In some cases, it's outrageous the way that uh, people have claimed the name of Jesus and then acted heinously. I, th- I think we have plenty of examples of that from history, but even from recent history, we just continue to have podcasts put out and news stories put out about all the wrongs that church leaders have done. But remember that this has always been the case. You, however, have to deal with Christ on his own merit, not the opinions or assessments of others. It's not about what other people say about Jesus. And it's not that the Bible is caught off guard or tries to paint a pretty picture about the people of God. No, it is very aware of the fact that God's people are often pretty messy, pretty bad. Uh, Maybe some of the last people we'd want to kick it with on the weekends or our children to be around. That's not hidden. It's, it's right here. But we have to deal with Jesus on his own merits. We have to look at who he is, take a good gander. And in the same way that I think that will help us make sense of judgment, I think we will begin to see that actually he is worth following, even if people all around us are hypocritical. 
Now to the right religious folk in the room. It is religious people who rejected Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with him. But they did want to continue getting the benefits of the religion that they were a part of. The religious leaders of this time wanted to maintain their places of power and honor. And I would think they probably wanted to maintain their sense of dignity and importance. They held a high position in their society being what they were. Uh, some seem to have wanted their religion and national freedom to be joined together. Right? They wanted these two things to, to join together and kind of come together for one purpose. But they did not want Jesus. They did not want the cornerstone, the very thing that they'd been waiting for, the very center of their faith. What was central to their religion that they had held on to for thousands of years they wanted a Christless religion. So we have to ask, what is it that we want from our religion? Is what you want from Christianity separate from Christ? Can you get it without him? Do you have it without him? Do you have all the things you already want from a respectable faith without Jesus? Do you want to be a decent person? Do you want status or self-worth? Do you want steps to prosperity? Do you want respect or a safe environment for you and your family? A sane society? Black and white morality? Real Christianity comes with a particular sort of uncomfortableness Real Christianity makes us take stock, honest stock of ourselves, a good long look in the mirror, and then says that it almost doesn't even matter. What you just looked at is not what this whole thing is about. We're forced in our faith to be honest about who we are and about what we are good things and bad things. And yet, our faith has so little to do with that because it's centered around the person of Jesus. And the thing about Jesus is that he pushes us. The scribes and the priests, they don't like that. They don't like that he's claiming to be the son of God. They don't like that he has very little interest in freeing them from the Romans. They don't like that he hangs out with prostitutes and uh, undesirables, as maybe they would have thought of them. And he pushes them, and he pushes his disciples, and he pushes us. See, you can be in the same room as Jesus and get all the stuff that you want from Christianity. Uh, Jesus and I can stand on separate sides of this gym and I will become nothing more like him. But if I'm to walk up to him and shake his hand and get to know him and be drawn into his embrace, he's going to change me. A relationship with him will change you. 
And Jesus takes us places we didn't know we would go, and he demands a lot from us, things we didn't know we would have to give. See, um, maybe, maybe, maybe for some of us, one way we'll know that we want Jesus, that our faith is actually in the risen Lord, that our trust is in him and our love is for him, is when even our black and white morality can just go with the wind as long as we have him. Nobody misunderstand me. I'm going to be preaching on the Ten Commandments in August here at Mercy. I'm not saying we don't have rules or things like that. I'm saying when we have the person of Jesus and we follow him and we trust in him completely, we have no need to measure ourselves. We have no need to find stability in anything but him. In true faith, we may find that we can let go of respectability and self-worth in a safe place for our family because we have Jesus. Because where he is, we'll be guided in the truth. We will live well. We will live lives pleasing to God. We'll be safe or unsafe, but right where God wants us to be. So he often makes us pretty uncomfortable, and for that reason, many of us want to keep him at arm's length. We want to come into the the realm of the saints. We want to step into the room, but we don't want to walk up and hug Jesus. Uh, even though I've just said maybe we can let go of our black and white morality, what I mean is I don't want us to find our, our comfort and stability there apart from Jesus. But one of the many things that's often wrong about Christianity for, for many people, one of the things they often find fault with is that uh, we, we don't want Christ's rules. So many of us don't want to deal with Christ because we don't want his rules. But then the problem for other people is that they'll take his rules any day and all day, but they don't want to take his righteousness. That's actually pretty uncomfortable too, to have to take somebody else's righteousness, to have to feel like things are out of your hands. Actually, that's the best thing in the world with God is that our righteousness before God would not be our own, but be Jesus' righteousness. But it's one more of those things that makes us uncomfortable. And then, of course, the rules come back in, and all of it rubs the wrong way. So, we... uh, we find that one of the very first places we meet Jesus is in lowliness. It's in this uncomfortable place of confessing our sins. Of admitting that we are all wrong. 
this is exactly what the, the scribes and the priests didn't want to do. Not only was Jesus not giving them what they wanted, he was demanding something from them. He was demanding that they give up on themselves. And he's, and he's not even promising freedom from the Romans. Like, how messed up is that? But what happens here is that when they reject Jesus, he becomes the one who judges them. And there is a very serious warning in this passage. That if we reject Jesus, we too will be rejected by him. The scribes and the Pharisees reject Jesus, but his rejection the consequences of his rejection are temporary. He's going to rise again. Remember, he just keeps marching to Jerusalem. And his resurrection is coming. His ascent into power is coming. But their rejection, despite being children of Abraham, despite having this religious affiliation and being in the same room as the people of God, their rejection is going to be ultimate, final, because they reject Jesus. It's not just because they broke some rules. It's certainly not because they broke arbitrary rules. It's because they reject the person of Jesus. And they never expected that this man that they were rejecting, that this nobody from Nazareth who teaches a bunch of stuff that they don't like and does things that they don't like but seems to keep gathering a following, they didn't expect that he would actually become the cornerstone, that he would be God coming back to judge them. And yet if we put our eyes on Christ in this passage, what I think we need to see is that there's this rapid ascent of Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, he's been walking around without a place to lay his head, being rejected by friends and family, knowing that he's headed toward Jerusalem where he'll be beaten and mocked and killed and rejected by his own people, despised by them. But he quickly is going to rise. It was unexpected that the stone rejected by the builders would become the cornerstone. Uh, I, can, I only know of one architect in the room, but uh, a cornerstone, I hope he doesn't correct me, is uh, in ancient architecture, it would have been a lot more important probably than it is now. Uh, we, we have cornerstones kind of as ceremony today, but in ancient architecture, this would have been the first stone laid in a building and everything would have been squared up and, and trued and plumbed based on this stone. It had to be very important. It tied walls together, right? It, it, it set the angles. It made sure everything in the building was right. It brings health to the building. It is central to the building. And yet, Jesus who's rejected, who's unexpected, who, again, is this 
this nobody from a nowhere town, he becomes this cornerstone. And the thing is, he did it not by fleeing his rejection and persecution or his crucifixion, but actually by going through it. He became the cornerstone by going through the rejection. This was the means through which he would rise. This was always his plan. He wasn't caught off guard by being rejected by the Jewish people. He wasn't caught off guard by his suffering. He came to do this. In uh, some of the other Gospels, he quotes more fully from Psalm 118, which is where he takes these lines uh, about the, the stone which is rejected becoming the cornerstone. He, he says more of the psalm in some of the other Gospels and goes on to say, uh, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. This was God's plan all along, that Jesus would be rejected for you, so that you would not have to be rejected by God. The main thrust of the passage, and and this is where we'll end, is truly uh, about judgment for this rejection. So I want to say last that through his rejection and overcoming all power and authority, uh, sorry, um, it, is, it is through his rejection that Jesus takes on all power and authority to judge. The scribes and priests didn't understand that. See, they actually walked away from this warning and this prophecy that Jesus had given them, scheming, upset that Jesus would dare to say this against them. They perceived as verse 19 says, that this parable was against them. They're they're walking away mad that Jesus would dare say something about them, the religious leaders. And so instead of repenting, even simply for the sake of fear, which maybe shouldn't be our main motivation, but it's not always the worst one either, They don't walk away going, he could really judge me. I need to repent. They walk away going, we got to kill this guy. They just keep rejecting him. But if you find that you have a Christless religion like they did, then please hear the warning and repent. Do not stay far off from Christ. Don't stand in the same room with him, but never actually come up and Be intimate friends with him. Or if you've pushed all religion away, then hear the warning and reconsider. Christ's rejection was temporary, but theirs was as permanent as their unbelief. So consider that Christ underwent this rejection not only to give authority to judge, but to save from the very judgment that he was bringing. He is the only God and judge of the world who ever bent down to bear the rejection of humans and save us from the rejection of God. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll continue. 
worshiping the Lord. Heavenly Father, please help us to hear this. Help us to take it seriously. Help us um, not to stand far off from Christ, but to come up close to him and deal with the uncomfortableness to confess our sins and know his wonderful embrace to know the love of God and what he, your son, has endured for us in this rejection. Lord, make us able also to bear rejection for this faith, uh, not in anger or fear, but in, even in gratefulness. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.